Welcome to the My Faith Votes podcast. I'm Megan West, media director and host for My Faith Votes. I'm excited to be sharing with you conversations we've been having with leading Christian influencers from across the nation. In this podcast, we talk about faith, politics, and how we bring biblical solutions to our nation's culture today. On today's episode, we're speaking with Dr. Jim Dennison, founder of the Dennison Forum. Dr. Jim Dennison, CEO and founder of the Dennison Forum. For those who subscribe to your daily article, you talk about news in a different, biblical, truthful perspective. Talk about that a little bit when you wake up in the morning and you put the news together for people to read. How do you approach it from a biblical standpoint? Uh, thank you. It's a great question. Our calling here, we think, is uh, kind of the tagline is news discerned differently. Our purpose is to equip a movement of culture changing Christians. That's what we're really about. We want to help Christians use their influence in a way that will make a difference for the kingdom every day. We believe that culture changes top down. It changes when you achieve your highest place of influence and live there faithfully. James Davison Hunter, a sociologist in Virginia, has really uh, convinced a lot of us that that's really how the culture changes. And so my goal each morning is to write an article based on that day's news, which will help people not only discern that content from a biblical perspective, look at it through a biblical prism, but then ask themselves, what can I do about that? How can I make a difference in light of this issue, whatever this issue might be? I write a rough draft the day before, and then I get up the next morning and either start over, depending on the news, or usually edit and uh, do some things to kind of bring it up to the current news, and then we get it out the door as a podcast and as an email and uh, a website edition as well. So really affecting change by looking at culture in a different way. That's the desire. And Christians live in a culture right now that's really difficult to be a part of. We see so much changing. So how do you approach from maybe the Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. speaking into what needs to be brought to light for the culture? Now that's a great question. You want the Holy Spirit to lead you, first of all. Uh, the Spirit has a particular kingdom assignment with, for each of us. We all have our own gifts, as you know. We all have our own calling. We all have our own, my ministry is, you know. And so within that part of the body of Christ, within my calling inside that, I want to help you be able to activate and to maximize that calling, that particular place of influence. And so we let the news drive us at that point. There'll be things in the news that will give me an opportunity, for instance, with the border crisis going on right now, an opportunity to ask Christians, how can I minister to children where I live? Not only at the border, but in my neighborhood. What can I do to use my influence in a way that will make a practical difference in their life? It might be I'm a legislator. What could I be doing in the legislative sphere? What could my company be doing to be making a difference inside our culture? And so whatever the issue is, I want to come along and ask you to ask biblical questions of your influence. So the news drives a lot of that. On occasion, I'll sense the Lord leading me to speak to a particular issue, and then the news will be the bridge to that. And so that's kind of the two ways we get where we're going. You recently wrote a book called How Does God See America? What led to writing that particular book at this particular time? I was reading in the book of Isaiah. And reading Isaiah is always uh, both troubling and encouraging. You see all the ways that God is comforting his people and you see all the ways he's challenging his people. And the thought occurred to me, human nature doesn't change. We still deal with the same issues we dealt with 20 centuries ago. Uh, God's nature doesn't change. And so what God blessed then, he still blesses. What God judged then, he still judges. And so if God were looking prophetically at our nation through the lens of Scripture, what would he see? What would be the places where he would judge us? What would be the places where he would encourage us? And so coming at our nation through that kind of prophetic lens 
became my sense of calling for the book, and the book was the result of that. So you talk about what grieves God mm -hmm. and what pleases God. So right now, you talk about issues such as abortion, the LGBTQ issues as some of the forefront going on in our culture. So thinking from a biblical worldview, how do we step back and look at that to be influencers in our culture, but from a biblical worldview? Yeah, I think it depends on the issue as to what the strategy is. Mm -hmm. If you picked abortion, for instance, uh, I myself am convinced that abortion is the great, the great moral challenge of our day. Uh, when you're talking about more than 60 million lives, innocent lives, um, I know there are exceptions. People will point to rape, incest, life of the mother, fetal deformity, but all of that in its largest percentage is maybe 7% of the abortions in American history. You're looking at at least 93% that are elective abortion. You're looking at people that obviously God loves. He loves us before he made us. He knew us, as Jeremiah says, even before he made us and formed us. And I think that is the great issue of our day. I look at that in the context of the worship of Molech in the Old Testament and the child sacrifice of the day. I believe God is more grieved about abortion than any other single issue in our country. And so when that happens to be the issue of the day, when there's something in the news or some reason that we can speak into that, I'm going to try to speak passionately from a biblical perspective, encouraging Christians not just to believe that life begins at conception, but it's not just pro-birth, it's pro-life. How can we minister to the mother? How can we minister to the biological father? How can we minister to the entire family system here, as well as save and minister to this precious unborn life. Now what that means in your influence may look different than what it means in my influence. It's not enough to agree. I think a lot of us in the pro-life movement have worked pretty hard to get people to agree that life begins at conception and is sacred. That's the starting place. That's the foundation. But we've not finished our job simply by convincing people that the Bible's right about that. What do we do as a result? quick example of that, the largest single percentage of women who choose abortion say they do so for financial reasons. Uh, well, what do we do about that? How do we speak into that? Even if you don't believe that's always the case, and that may just be an excuse that they're using, to the degree that that's true for one person, the church has failed them. We need to be doing something such that they don't have that as a reason that they think they have to end the life of this child. What can we be doing if we're legislators to change the system? What can we be doing as bankers? What can we be doing as business professionals? What could pastors be doing? Could we be adopting families? Could we be adopting unwed mothers? How can we be changing the system here, not just trying to save the life of the individual child? Well, it's interesting you say that because you talk in your book about postmodernism. Mm -hmm and looking at truth and appeal um, in two different kind of contexts. Mm -hmm. And I see that in the pro-life movement because mm -hmm. I hear a lot of arguments saying, well, you say you're pro-life, mm -hmm. but what are you doing about it? And so how do we approach that from a perspective of someone who believes in choice, mm -hmm. who says it should be pro-choice, right. but yet they have the worldview that it's appeal before truth. Mm -hmm. That's the, you've put your finger on really the huge issue, I think, that's underlying the, mo the moral condition of our country, whatever that issue is. In the postmodern context, there's this idea that truth is personal, individual, and subjective. You have your ideas, I have my ideas. You have no right to force your beliefs on others. And we drive that into the abortion conversation with this claim that uh, your beliefs regarding life are your beliefs and you can't force them on me. One of the ways that I find that to be really kind of inconsistent is the very people, least some, that are arguing this pro-choice position that say that you um, have no right to tell me what to believe about human life, don't apply that on the other side of birth. They would never say that to infanticide. They wouldn't say that relative to the, um, to the death of, of a newborn, uh, even though this is exactly the same life 
that 30 minutes ago was in the mother's womb has moved two feet and now it has a legal protection it didn't. It's exactly the same baby. It's exactly the same organism, as it were. But for some reason, the idea is that my personal subjective opinions matter prior to birth in a way they're not allowed to matter on the other side of birth. To me, that's an enormous inconsistency. The law protects life after birth in a way it doesn't prior to birth, but it's the same baby. It's the same life. And understanding that inconsistency, I think, is one of the ways Christians can make this argument more effectively. And how do we do that? Some practical terms. Mm -hmm. Just for someone sitting out there going, look, I, this is what I believe, but mm -hmm. I don't know how to do it because I'm, I'm fearful of what may happen to me or what may be said of me when I step out in faith. Now that's a great question because the first thing we have to do is decide to step out in faith. We live, unfortunately, in a culture that I believe is more post-Christian and even anti-Christian than it's ever been in our nation's history. I've made, actually made some study of this historically. That's not just a blanket statement or some kind of uh, hyperbole. I do believe that biblical morality is more opposed today than it's ever been. And so uh, if we're going to, for instance, stand for life, we understand that we're going to be accused of a war on women, we're going to be accused of being anti-choice, we're going to be accused of imposing our morals on other people. I read an article the other day that called us virulent pro-birthers was the phrase that was being used to describe us. We just have to know that that's where the culture now is. There was a day when President Clinton was arguing that abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. Well, rare is gone now. Mm -hmm. Now it's shout your abortion hashtags. Now it's Facebook live stream abortions at Planned Parenthood clinics and so forth. So that's the first step, is to decide that I'm willing to be bold and courageous to stand for life because I know what's at stake here. And my reputation isn't as important as the actual precious innocent life that's at stake. So that's the first thing we do. Then second, we ask the Holy Spirit to lead us. All right, God, how am I to speak into this? How can I make the most practical, positive, substantive difference? Quick example of that. Uh, two of my favorite people in this conversation are a couple that I uh, knew in a church that I pastored. They were very committed to a belief that life begins at conception and it is sacred, and they wanted to know what to do. They came across a 15-year-old uh, pregnant teenager that they wanted help. She was deciding whether to abort her child. They said to her, uh, the reasons for this were that she did not have the financial means to raise the child and didn't have a family system to support her. So they said, we will adopt you. We will bring you into our family. We will give you a life. And when your daughter is born, we will adopt her as our own. And that's what they've done. This teenager that they adopted is now a college graduate. She's now married, I think, to a minister. And her daughter is their daughter. And they have stepped into that family system in the most proactive, beautiful mm. manner possible. And sometimes hearing stories like that mm. to encourage others that mm. they have the courage to step forward as well. And God will give you the grace mm. to do that if you're willing to make that step. Mm. I'm reminded of that place in the book of Joshua where there's the flooded Jordan River. They have to step into the water before God will stop the flood. Mm. It's not that we earn his blessing in doing that. Such faith positions us to receive what grace wants to give. So if I say to the Lord, Lord, I'm willing to take this step. Show me what to do. Give me the courage. Give me the means to do this. Show me how you want me to do this. He will answer that prayer. And he will use you in ways you can't begin to imagine today. So what steps can we, because you ask this in your book, can we fruitfully and gracefully engage with worldviews that are different from ours and much times in opposition to ours without creating more division? That's the first step. It's Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. 
Some of us are willing to love without truth. Some are willing to do truth without love. And it's really the both. I think Jesus is our model in John chapter 4. So he's at the, uh, at the well. It's the middle of the day. And the woman from the Samaritan village has come out. Jews don't speak to Samaritans, as John explains. And here's a rabbi speaking to a woman. And this particular woman has lived with some immoral choices in her life. And a lot of folk, Pharisees and others, would have come along and condemned her, ostracized her, had no relationship with her. Even his own disciples were shocked that he was talking with her. He starts where she is. He starts with common ground. She's come for water, so he asks for water. If I'd been Jesus, I would have started by saying, do you know that I'm the Messiah? That would have been my first play. His first play is, could I have a drink of water? She's shocked that he will do that. And from water, he leads her to living water. And from that, he leads her to truth, which changes her life and her entire village. But it starts by building common ground. So I had a neighbor in one of the neighborhoods where I lived who, as it turned out, uh, was very committed to an atheistic position. So I wanted to develop a friendship with him, a relationship with him. He was very interested in theological ideas. had actually gone to a Baptist university, married to a practicing Catholic, and himself a card-carrying atheist is how he described himself. So I began asking him to help me to critique my writing. Help me because I've been interested in apologetics for years. How do you see this argument? How would you hear this? If you were in my church this Sunday, how would this strike you? I asked him to be kind of a focus group for me. He was more than happy to do that. And we developed a terrific friendship, a great relationship around commonalities at that point. Uh, I always tried to make certain to uh, be as good a neighbor as I could be, just in general terms, and then look for a way to develop a friendship. So uh, I guess probably the short answer to the question would be, you start with commonalities. Who do I, what do I have in common with this Muslim friend? What can I do that uh, could meet the need of this Buddhist neighbor or this agnostic that lives down the street? How do I get to water? And then on the basis of building a relationship, how do I earn the right to speak into the spiritual lives and the spiritual needs that they have and know that God will lead you. He will do that. But we tend to want to start with the gospel presentation. And on occasion, God will lead us to do that. You had that with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. On occasion, God will do that. Most often, it seems, he builds a bridge. He builds a relationship. And you have to come into this understanding that their salvation isn't on you. Uh, You and I can't convict anybody of their sin. We can't save their souls. We can't change their lives. That's the Holy Spirit's job. An analogy that I was given years ago that really helped me was when I'm sharing my faith or have the opportunity, I kind of feel like I'm on trial. person I'm talking to might be the prosecuting attorney trying to find what's wrong with my belief. Actually, Jesus is on trial. Satan's the prosecutor. Holy Spirit's a defense attorney. The person you're talking to is the jury. You're just a witness called to the stand. You might be the first witness called to the stand and never hear how the jury decides. It might be the last and you're in the courtroom when they decide, hopefully for Jesus. You'll probably be someplace in the middle. But your job is to go to the stand when you're called and say what you know. Just be faithful with what you know and know that their conversion is not your responsibility. Being faithful is your responsibility. That has alleviated a great deal of stress for me and caused me to want to measure success by obedience. And because Christ has changed us, we can share that with others and changes others around us. In a way that we don't even know is happening. Uh, I can see Jesus in you. I can tell. If I met you on the street, I would know that you follow Jesus. It's just obvious to me uh, in your demeanor, in your face. And I think of Moses when he came down from the mountain and his face was shining, although he didn't even know it. Uh, There's something the Holy Spirit does in and through us that we don't even measure ourselves. All we need to be is faithful. My favorite witness in the Bible is in John chapter 9, the man that was healed that was born blind. And he's called on the carpet, you know, and the authorities, and how did this happen and all of this. And his statement was, this is what I know. I was blind and now I see. I might be able to argue with somebody's theology or their convictions. I can't argue with their experience. 
if their experience is, I was blind and now I see. There's a power in that that we really don't want to minimize. Absolutely. Well, our passion at My Faith Votes is mm -hmm. to equip and motivate Christians mm -hmm. to participate and vote in every election mm -hmm. because we can influence our culture mm -hmm. with um, just the way that we vote at the ballot box. But Christians don't always see the connection between mm -hmm. faith and the voting booth. Mm -hmm. So what's your encouragement to Christians to say, hey, we can affect our culture by voting and being engaged in the political process around us, even if it's so divisive. And it is so divisive today and probably will be for a while. I don't think that the current context is a cause but a symptom, I think, mm -hmm. of divisiveness that's been there for a long time and is unfortunately uh, in many ways symptomatic of the worldviews we've been describing. Mm -hmm. We're at a place right now where for the first time in American history, we have a, I mean, definite, deep-seated disagreement over major moral issues in this country, whether you're on the pro-choice side or the pro-life side. That's come to be the case with same-sex marriage. It's becoming the case with euthanasia or death mm -hmm. with dignity laws. We're seeing this on moral levels. There's a chasm now, a division, that's becoming deeper and more vitriolic. And as a result, the politics that reflect that are becoming more vitriolic, I'm afraid. And so the first reaction a lot of Christians have is just to kind of stay out of all that. Look, this is not for me. I don't want to be in this. I'm struggling to keep my marriage together and raise my kids and do my job. And why do I need to be involved in all of this? It's kind of the first response that we have. It's exactly the opposite response of what Jesus would have us do. I believe Jesus wants us to engage on at least three levels. The first level is to be a responsible person who votes biblically. At this point, I want to be examining the opportunities, the choices, from a biblical perspective. That's not the way a lot of us process these things. Since 1960, someone did a study, every president that was successfully elected was the more likable of the candidates based on a specific likability index. The only time that wasn't true was in 2000 when Al Gore and George W. Bush tied on likability and essentially tied mm -hmm. in the election. So a lot of folk based on who, a lot of people vote and even Christians vote based on who they like or who they think is the more Christian candidate or who they believe represents a biblical worldview but they haven't really studied that. First thing we have to do is study that. How do you do that? Well, a lot of them, you can just go to their websites. Mm -hmm. You can look at what their positions are. There are organizations that can help you evaluate various positions from a biblical perspective. So the first thing we have to be as responsible biblical voters, where we understand what the position is and which one we are led to from a biblical perspective. None will be perfect, but one will be the person we feel drawn to. Second, we need to be involved in the process. I'm convinced that more Christians are called into public service than are answering the call. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Uh, we change culture top down. And so being involved in the process, whether you're running for office or you're engaged in the political uh, arena in some way, the culture of your, of your environment is absolutely critical. Uh, one of my dearest friends was mayor of Dallas for a period of time. Uh, ran for that position because he felt God was calling him into that arena. I believe that as well. He said to me that the big mistake Christians made when he was elected was thinking, all right, I've elected a Christian to office, I've done my job. And so they leave him out there and they just kind of go back to their lives. He said, that's only the start. If you're wanting me to influence this city in a biblical context, you need to show up at city hall meetings. You need to show up and testify before the council. You need to be involved in local referenda. You need to know what's happening. You need to write letters to the editor. Mm -hmm. You need to be as involved as this democracy gives you the opportunity to be involved. It's not just voting. It's then engaging on whatever level God calls you to. And then, of course, the third level is intercession. In uh, 1 Timothy 2, we are commanded to pray for our rulers. When Paul's writing that, he's not writing that about evangelical Christians. He's writing that about the very government that eventually beheaded him 
because he wouldn't stop preaching the gospel. And nonetheless, he says that we are required to pray for it and intercede for those that are in authority. And as we do that, then we're giving God an opportunity to make changes in their lives that humans can't accomplish. And all of that is to the glory of God. Amen. Well, that's our motto, pray, think, mm -hmm. vote. So begin with prayer and that's then right. live that out and mm -hmm. know it Absolutely. very well. Well, any thoughts from your book that you would like to have people know? Mm -hmm. How does God see America right now? From your perspective, after writing the book, is there something that you want the audience to know and to be in tune with. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, there's some real good news as well as bad news. I wouldn't want us to hear this as only a negative diatribe or something such as that. Uh, for instance, on the positive side, uh, I'm extremely grateful for the progress we've made in race relations. We are nowhere near where we need to be. Nowhere near. Some of my dearest friends in Dallas are African Americans who will tell you about the racism they still face, the prejudice that they still are up against. A dear friend of mine who lives in my neighborhood will tell you when he goes in one of our local stores, he has to make sure he's not wearing a hood, takes off his sunglasses, and he still expects to be followed all the time he's in the store by one of the clerks. And when his kids walk home from school, he encourages them not to walk on the sidewalk or near the grass because someone may call the police. And that's in my neighborhood in North Dallas today. We're nowhere near where we need to be, but we're better than we were. Race relations as a result of the civil rights legislation of the 60s have made progress, and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that we've made some progress. I'm grateful that we're making progress on some level. I'm grateful that women are empowered in our culture in a way that wasn't true a generation or two ago. I'm grateful that we have more women leading companies, not enough, but more, more women involved in political service, more women that are understood to have leadership roles of significance in church life. And so there's some places of real progress, I think, in the country. Um, the other side of this, and really my bottom line in answering your question, I believe the need for a spiritual awakening in America has never been as great as it is today. Uh, democracy depends on morality. Uh, John Adams said that the Constitution was intended for a moral and religious people and is wholly unsuited to the governance of any other. Uh, a participatory democracy depends on a collective uh, kind of cohesive moral foundation. I don't believe that all the founders were godly evangelical Baptist deacons. I don't believe that at all. But even the more deistic of them agreed that there was a consensual morality that was essential to democracy. Well, we're losing that. Mm -hmm. And, and as, as we, we lose that, that consensual morality, as we lose that, uh, that authority within a Judeo-Christian tradition, the democracy that is, rest, that is based on that begins to founder. And I think that's where we are today. So I pray every day for spiritual awakening in this country. I believe that happens, as the biblical uh, formula suggests, when God's people called by His name humble ourselves and we pray, we seek His face, we turn from our wicked ways. Then He hears from heaven, He forgives our sin, and He heals our land. To the degree that our ministry and yours can be a part of that spiritual awakening, we're meeting, I think, the greatest need in our culture today. Amen. Well, we're joining you in that. Mm -hmm. How can people connect with you if they want to get the news in the morning yeah, well, and read you. more about your writings? Because you're constantly writing, well, whether it's books, you. articles, yeah. just giving a Christian perspective mm -hmm. to our culture. Well, the website, I guess, would be the easiest answer to that. Denisonforum.org, D-E-N-I-S-O-N forum.org would be the kind of the portal that. That's where they could read the daily article, the books, uh, be able to access the social media that we do, the podcast, all that go inside that. Uh, that would be the one-stop shop, I guess, to begin with. And then beyond that, I'd love to have people follow us in the very social media that we do. But the website, I guess, would be a good place to start. Great. Well, thank you for helping us look at things from a biblical worldview. We'll be praying for your ministry. Thank you. And, and us for you as well. Thank you.
Thanks for joining us on this episode. We encourage you to connect with us at myfaithvotes.org and on social media at myfaithvotes to stay informed and active on the issues that matter most.